Do I get to throw out the first ball of the season? Yep, just like last year. <laughs> well, it's a hard ball. <laughs> <laughs> It is September 30th, 2006. It has been three long months since you last heard from me. I have missed the show tremendously, and I'm very excited and happy to be back. We have got some amazing interviews already taped, already edited, all ready to roll out over the weeks and months to come as we go forward with Been All of America Audio Season 2. I want to welcome back all of our longtime listeners who've been waiting patiently for the return of Been All of America Audio I'm very excited to hear your reaction to the interviews we have lined up. For the new listeners, welcome to the show. Thank you for sampling us. I hope you stick around. I hope you come back for more. Let's talk about the season premiere. Last year, we kicked it off with Jim Mars. This year, we're kicking it off with Jim Mars once again. Let me run down what we'll be talking about. We will be discussing Jim's new book, The Terror Conspiracy. We're talking about 9-11 Also, some new revelations in JFK assassination research. New York City on the 5th anniversary of 9-11, the birth and evolution of the 9-11 truth movement and its strange rivalry with ufology, Hurricane Katrina, FEMA camps, the 08 election, and potential scenarios for the future of America. Plus, of course, tons and tons more stuff I didn't even mention there in the preview. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Jim Mars, let me give you a little bit of background on him. He graduated with a degree in journalism from the University of North Texas, served in the U.S. Army, after which he became a reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Jim worked for and owned several Texas newspapers before becoming an independent journalist-slash-author. His in-depth investigative book, Alien Agenda, has been cited as the best-selling non-fiction book on UFOs in the world. He is also the author of the New York Times bestsellers Crossfire, The Plot That Killed Kennedy, a basis for the Oliver Stone film JFK, and Rule by Secrecy, the hidden history that connects the Trilateral Commission, the Freemasons, and the Great Pyramids. His new book is The Terror Conspiracy, Deception, 9-11, and the Loss of Liberty. His website is www.jimmars.com, J-I-M-M-A-R-R-S.com. Without any further ado, this interview was recorded on September 14, 2006, Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Mars on the season premiere of Been All of America Audio Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the season premiere of Been All of America Audio Season 2. When I was putting together the list of guests for Season 2, I was trying to figure out who could fill the Jim Mars role as season premiere, and it really came down to no one can fill the Jim Mars role except for Jim Mars himself. Long-time listeners to the show... And readers at BenAllOfAmerica.com know that this radio show and the website and everything else wouldn't even be in existence if it wasn't for Rule by Secrecy by Jim Mars. That's the book that got me started. Um, I probably give a half dozen 
copies of Rule by Secrecy a year as Christmas gifts to my friends who try to wonder how I got into this. How I got into it was through Rule by Secrecy. I can't put it over enough. Jim Mars is here with us to kick off Season 2, much like he kicked off Season 1. He's got a new book out. It's called The Terror Conspiracy, Deception, 9-11, and the Loss of Liberty. You can find it pretty much anywhere. I finished it this week. It's another tour de force from Jim Mars. It's an outstanding book. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for being a part of Season 2. Hey, Tim, it's a pleasure to be with you. And Do I get to throw out the first ball of the season? Exactly, yep, <laughs> just like last year. Well, it's a hard ball. <laughs> what, what, what we're coming to understand, and more and more people are coming to understand, is that 9-11 was an inside job. And uh, it's amazing, but a recent MSNBC poll, nationwide poll, uh, 59% said they felt that the U.S. government had was complicit in the 9-11 attacks. 11, uh, 30% said no, no way. 11% said they were not sure. So when you add 11%, when they say they're not sure, that indicates though they're at least open to the idea, right? Yeah. So you add that, we got 70% of the population that's not buying that crazy official conspiracy theory and that's all it is yeah yeah it's just a conspiracy theory and believe me as one who's dealt with conspiracy theories for years now it's one of the weakest ones i've ever heard <laughs> you got 19 uh muslim fanatics who uh according to their flight instructors couldn't fly small craft and didn't even act like they had driven cars much but they can simultaneously take over four airliners with little bitty box cutters and somehow miraculously turn off their transponders all at the same time and then fly unerringly into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and then crash one while fighting with the passengers, uh, defeating our $400 billion defense system, all the while under the control of a Muslim cleric using a laptop computer in a cave in Afghanistan. If that isn't the most ridiculous conspiracy theory I've ever heard, and yet that's what we're expected to buy as to the official explanation of 9-11. And, and even then, they can't get their story straight. First, the FAA, they're just such bumbling incompetence that they just can't keep up with those flights. They don't know where they are. They lost them. Even after Flight 175 hit the Twin Tower, they, they're still looking for it. So they just can't do anything right. And yet... An hour or so later, they perform just miraculously and without incident, grounding thousands of commercial aircraft, say, an event that is unprecedented in U.S. history, and they perform flawlessly. What is with that? The entire scenario is bewildering uh, to look at from afar. It is, and I can tell you where the smoking gun lies. It lies in war game exercises. Mm -hmm. Now, this has been downplayed. It was denied for almost a year. They said, oh, that's an Internet rumor, you know. Yeah. But finally, uh, Richard Clark, who was on 9-11, was the chief of counterterrorism. Uh, he finally published a book, and he flat, right in the first few pages, he says, he contacts General uh, Meyer of NORAD and said, have you got any interceptors in the air? And General Meyer says, well, we're in the middle of these war game exercises, vigilant guardian. 
Well, now we know there was Vigilant Guardian, Vigilant Warrior, uh, several other code names. There was a, a National Reconnaissance Office uh, drill going on near Washington, where, believe it or not, on the morning of 9-11, and the scenario was that a plane had hit their building. Uh, and uh, there was a mass casualty drill scheduled for the Pentagon, and there was also a, a, a drill scheduled for New York, which uh, explains the very fascinating fact that the FEMA emergency response team arrived in New York City on the evening of September the 10th. The night before 9-11, how convenient. Yeah. It's just too much. So the war game exercises, uh, when the FAA flight controllers contacted NORAD and said, we've got four planes off course, we think they're hijacked, can you give us some assistance? The first reaction was, is this the real world or the, or the exercises? Since the war games? Yeah. Of course it was the war games that threw our, sent all our fighters up into Canada, sent them off into the ocean somewhere, all over the place. Some of them had training ammunition. Uh, just totally uh, discombobulated our normal defense system. Now, the question becomes, how did the hijackers know when to coordinate their attack with these war game exercises. And the fact is, they did know, because it has now been reliably reported that on September the 10th, the National Security Agency intercepted a message from Mohammed Atta, who they say was the leader of the hijack crews, and he says, the match is about to begin. Tomorrow is zero hour. He didn't, he didn't say the jihad or the operation or the attacks. He said the match, the games, the games begin tomorrow. And that's zero hour. That's when we will attack. Now, how in the world could they have known that when the public was not aware of these war games unless they had inside information? Exactly. And this is what makes 9-11 an inside job, uh, along with a plethora of other information, such as the fact that at least a dozen nations, including the Taliban in Afghanistan, were trying to warn us that we we're about to be attacked. And did somebody at the high level of the United States know we we're about to be attacked? We are told no, that they just couldn't connect the dots. And as Condoleezza Rice and Rumsfeld and others have said, well, who would have ever thought that they'd use airliners as weapons? And yet the facts speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. In August of 2001, then Attorney General John Ashcroft announced that he was going to quit flying commercial aircraft. He was only going to fly on chartered government flights. And about and just a few days before 9-11, several ranking Pentagon generals canceled their commercial flights and decided to take a military flight. And then, of course, we found out much later that on the day of 9-11, certain people within the White House had already begun to take that Cipro, which is the uh, vaccine against anthrax. Yeah. You know, how, the, how come they didn't tell the rest of us that? <laughs> exactly. You know, it, yeah. it, it, hey, Tim, it goes on and on mm -hmm. and on, mm -hmm. and you can read all about it in my new book, the terror, the terror conspiracy, and as you know, it's it's not a little thin tome. It's oh, no. almost five hundred pages. No, it's like it's another classic Jim Mars book. You could <laughs> you could beat a man with it if you wanted to. <laughs> um, now, talking a little bit, you were recently in New York for the nine eleven fifth anniversary. Talk about uh, what the atmosphere was like there um, from your perspective. 
Well, not only was I there for the 9-11 stuff, but also kind of hung out in some places and, and met some people who were uh, with the New York Fire Department and, and uh, fellows with the New York Police Department. And and what they apparently they're constrained. Uh, the word I get is, and from what I understand, they've been threatened with their jobs, with their security, with their pensions. Yeah. And they are pretty much muzzled, just like the 9-11 uh, victims' families, okay? Yeah. Uh, so many of them took the money from the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund, and this was no small amounts. I think the smallest amount you, you, you got was like $250,000, wow. and it went on up to a million five or more, just depending on the earning power of the family member that was lost. Yeah. And yet, when you take that money, you also signed an agreement saying you could not sue anybody, and you could not talk about what happened. Oh, boy. And this is one of the reasons we all know about uh, Mindy Kleinberg and uh, and, and uh, uh, Karen Breitweiser and Ellen Mariani and mm -hmm. various other of these uh, victims' family members who have spoken out and raised hell about what's going on. But these are the ones who disdained taking the government money. Yeah. The rest of them, for the most part, have had to remain pretty quiet, okay? Mm -hmm. And this, plus the threats to job and security, is what has prevented a lot of those people from speaking out. But I think that the Zogby poll that was taken, and this was like two years ago in New York City, showed that almost 50% of those people in New York City two years ago said that 9-11, they believed 9-11 was an insane job and that there were government officials complicit in this. And I'll tell you what's got the people in New York really upset right now yep. is the lies that were put out by the uh, Environmental Protection Agency in the days, beginning hours after 9-11 and in the days following when they said, oh, the air's okay, everybody go back to your homes, just keep working, everything's fine. And now they, especially the first responders, uh, are coming down with these horrendous illnesses caused by all that asbestos and dust yeah. and chemicals and God knows what in the air. And of course, all of the Manhattanites were sucking that in for weeks, and I'm sure that over time that the incidence of respiratory problems is going to spread from the first responders to just bystanders and people who live in the area. Uh, I have a real dear friend that lives in the Bowery, and he said he's planning to move. His health is just getting worse and worse, oh, and it all has to do with uh, his breathing. Yeah. You know, and yet the, the EPA told him, oh, it's okay, but then, hey, Weapons of mass destruction, light at the end of the tunnel. You know, how many times have we been lied to? Exactly, exactly. Now, um, we kind of talked about this last year. I think it was off air, actually, but it was like uh, this is this is such a massive uh, story. There's such a massive scope to 9-11. It's like the JFK assassination uh, squared or tripled even. Right. Um, how do you go about educating the public to this? Because you don't even know where to begin. It's a four. It's a, there's four areas involved, and, yeah. and you know, it's just a, it's huge and it's massive. And, and from a personal perspective, when you meet people and you and the issue comes up, it's very hard to even know where to begin. Well, let me tell you, Tim. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> something I've learned the hard way over all these years is you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah, you can. Talk to your blue in the space, but nobody is going to learn anything until they're ready to learn. Mm -hmm. 
So you're not going to get anywhere uh, shouting and screaming and waving your fist and trying to spew statistics and facts and data at them, okay? Yeah. What you have to do is just hold her hand and say, it's okay. Let's try to find the truth. And then when they're ready to learn and you can throw a few things at them, here's a few uh, icebreakers, okay? Okay, here we go. Just, just say, well, hey, uh, Joe. You know, how are we supposed to believe that this war on terrorism is legitimate and that we're supposed to be so afraid of a evil international organization that's trying to slip weapons of mass destruction into our country because they hate our freedom and democracy when our government won't even secure the borders? Yeah. That'll get them thinking. Exactly, uh, yeah. Duh. Wait a minute. Why are, why, are, why are the illegal immigrants just pouring across here? And by the way, uh, earlier this year, the Texas media had a big story. Then they had checked with the uh, uh, Border Patrol arrest over the past several months, and they found that uh, 65% of those arrested were not Mexicans. Okay? Yeah. They, they represented people from 72 different nations. Wow. So they're just pouring across our borders. Well, wait a minute. And, you know, and can we protect the border? You're damn right we can. Richard Nixon, his first war against drugs, trying to shut down marijuana, closed the Mexican border. Okay? Mm -hmm. the, uh, on the day of the Kennedy assassination, Johnson was saying this could be an international communist plot. They closed the Mexican border. They can close the border, but they have not. So it makes this war on terrorism just a sham and a joke. So there's a good icebreaker. It, you know, why are we supposed to believe in the war on terror when they won't even secure the borders? Yeah. And then when it comes to 9-11, just, uh, you know, just a few interesting questions. Well, you know, we now have photographs of the hole in the Pentagon before the wall section caved in, and it's only about 20 foot by 20 foot. Well, how do you get a... Giant Boeing 757 with a wingspan of 124 feet and a tail height to 44 feet. That's four stories. How do you get that through a 20 by 20 foot hole? Yeah. And you don't. And if you do, then you do like Time Magazine says. I'm looking at the latest issue of Time Magazine. They got a big article here about why the 9-11 conspiracies won't go away. And, of course, I can tell them why, because they're true. Yeah. But... In the body copy, talking about the, uh, the Pentagon, says, um, experts will tell you the hole was punched by the plane's fuselage, not its wings, which sheared off on impact. Well, there you go. Okay, nice answer. Mm -hmm. But then they very thoughtfully give us three blow-ups of a, uh, the front of the Pentagon there after the wall collapsed, and you can see a lot of rubble there, but where are the wings? The wings aren't there. Yeah. The wings are not there, and we've got the photographs taken minutes after the thing happened. The grass is green. Uh, there's wooden spools sitting there that aren't even burned up or destroyed. Uh, and where are the wings? And where's the tail? It's just not there. Something screwy with that whole thing. And by the way, I took a little tour around the Pentagon on uh, Monday afternoon, mm -hmm. and uh, you still can't get to that side of the Pentagon. They've got it. It's still five years later. They got fences up, and oh, really? they're, they're still working on it. And they've repaired the facade, but you still can't get there to see up close to see what the heck's going on. But what I did notice was the security cameras on every corner of the Pentagon. Where are those tapes? Yeah. 
Well, those tapes, they've seen, obviously there's not a security problem because they've already showed us 16 frames of, of a parking lot camera. And they said, oh, here it is, uh, see? And then the news media ballyhoos the hell out of it. Okay, that puts the 9-11 conspiracy theorist to rest. Here's a Pentagon release, fell in the plane, hit the Pentagon. Well, I just challenge anyone, you go look at those 16 frames and you tell me with a straight face that you can see a big Boeing 757 in there because you cannot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what do you make of this uh, in the last year or so it seems like there's been a lot of mainstream acknowledgement of the 9-11 movement well they can't they can't ignore it anymore 70 percent of the people are buying into it and uh, yeah. even u.s news and world report says uh, you know this is this has gone past conspiracy theory this is a political uh, movement now you know and so uh, and it's going to continue to grow as people beginning to wake out of their lethargy and wake up and realize that we've been lied to lied to lied to and what i understand, Tim, is why they hadn't figured it out before now. It's yeah. not like we've been never been lied to before. Exactly. I mean, my whole life, it was before the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, it was, well, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and we're almost winning over there. It's going to be over in just a little bit. And then the Tet Offensive happened, and the war just intensified. And then we got Nixon. I'm not a crook. I didn't do anything wrong. And then he has to resign uh, on threat of impeachment. Of course he was a crook. And then you got the lone assassin theory, which of the Kennedy assassination, which has been totally debunked these days. And speaking of, Tim, the two strongest pieces of evidence that was used to convict Oswald in the minds of the public, other other than that famous Life magazine picture, which was published eight months before the Warren Commission concluded he was uh, guilty, mm-hmm. uh, was, uh, and that, and that, by the way, is a phony photograph and can be proven to be be so. In fact, Oswald himself told the Dallas police, he said, that's my face, but that's not my body. He said, that's a composite photograph. Yeah. And, uh, but the two other strongest pieces of evidence was they said on Monday night after the assassination, uh, Henry Wade, the district attorney in Dallas announced in the news media, he says, oh, by the way, have I mentioned we've got his fingerprints on the rifle? Well, whoa, that sounds pretty damaging right there. Yeah. But then when you look closer, you find out that that rifle was sent to the FBI crime lab in Washington the day after the assassination. And on a document signed that day by none other than Jagger Hoover, it states no usable prints were found on the rifle or even the inner parts of the rifle. And then you find on Sunday the rifle was shipped back to Dallas. On Monday morning, it was sent over to Miller Funeral Home in Fort Worth where they were preparing Oswald's body for burial. And the funeral home director, Paul Rudy, uh, told me on several different occasions that he was there when the FBI put Oswald's dead hand on the rifle. Wow. And he said, in fact, he had a big problem in trying to get the fingerprint ink off of Oswald's dead hand in time to bury him. Okay, and then that night they announced, oh, have I mentioned, we've got his fingerprints on the rifle. So you can see that if this was a courtroom and you're the jury, you wouldn't buy the fingerprints. So the only other thing they had that seemed to convince a lot of uh, serious, thoughtful, scientific-minded people was the neutron activation analysis test which is where they compare the uh, metal that that, uh, makes up the bullet fragments that were found in President Kennedy, Governor Connolly, and the car, the limousine. Mm -hmm. Well, at the time, Jagger Hoover told the Warren Commission that these fragments were similar, and therefore they came from the same ammunition, and therefore it was Oswald's ammunition, therefore Oswald's guilty. Well, 
even then in all these years, I knew that that was dissembling because similar doesn't work. Yeah. It has to be absolutely an identical match. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, just a few weeks ago, a scientist at the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory went over that neutron activation analysis and very generously and kindly said that they had misinterpreted the data. <laughs> which means that these fragments do not match, which means they come from different ammunition, which means there was more than one person shooting at Kennedy. Only 40 years too late, though. Right? Only 40 <laughs> years too late. But you know, Tim, that's exciting oh, and, yeah, totally. and, 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 and makes me hopeful. Yeah. It took 40 years for the public in the United States to realize that Kennedy was killed as a result of a conspiracy and that it had been covered up at the level of the federal government of the United States. Yeah. We're only five years out from 9-11, and 70% of the population is not buying their conspiracy theory. Yeah. That raises uh, an interesting paradox that we talked about last year, and that's that you had said that if the truth about 9-11 grows to the surface and gets mainstream acceptance, then we're in a very high danger of them pulling the trigger on another incident. Um, it seems like with the this thing's growing exponentially every year, uh, it's grown a lot in the last year since I talked to you last, that paradox is still present, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. In fact, I think the danger is even higher now than it was then because we're approaching these midterm elections in November. And right now, you've already seen uh, Joe Lieberman get defeated in his nomination, so now he has to run as a independent. And uh, you've seen other people. Uh, I was with Robert uh, Colonel Robert Bowen up in, New York, uh, up in New York and in Washington who just got the Democratic nomination in Florida in his precinct running on a let's tell the truth about 9-11. Oh, wow. Platform. Yeah, wow is right. So, see, as we get close to this election, if it appears that the neocons are going to take a bath, then there's we're in very much danger of them triggering another one of these false flag operations. Okay, and then another sort of aspect to that idea is that do you think there's a danger of uh, like a drop-off in the 9-11 truth movement if Bush and the neocons uh, leave office uh, after 08. You know, once Bush gets out, do you think a lot of the simple-minded people who don't understand the, uh, the left-right paradigm that we understand as far as American politics goes, right. do you think those people are going to be like, well, Bush is out, we can celebrate, who, who cares about 9-11, you know, that sort of thing. Is there a danger there that, that we're going to lose a lot of people who think that it's over once Bush is gone? Uh, yes, I think so, but I'm also hopeful that a lot of people are beginning to lift their eyes up and look beyond that old, uh, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal paradigm. Yeah. Um, I, this is what I've predicted for some time, and I still, still see it happening. Uh, through the rest of this year and through next year and going into uh, 2008, uh, you're going to see more and more come out about the Bush's complicity in 9-11. Yeah. And, uh, and even if you want to take their side of it, okay, what's, the, what's their side of it? Their side of it is we were just bumblers and incompetence. We couldn't connect the dots. We just, you know, we just missed it. Sorry, you know. Uh, well, okay. So even if you take their side of it, they're a bunch of bumbling incompetence. And if you <laughs> study the actual evidence, then it leads to the distinct possibility that they were complicit in it. Yeah. And either way, they need to be out of there. Exactly. Okay? Yeah. So I think that's going to continue to go on unless there's another major terrorist strike and blow and people panic and then they declare martial law and then we're going to be in a whole different kettle of fish. Exactly. But if everything continues to go along, you're going to see more and more come out 
about the truth of 9-11, and by 2008, the majority of Americans are going to be so fed up that they're going to bounce the neocons and, and unfortunately, even the good Republicans out on their butts. And then what are they going to do? They're going to turn to Hillary Clinton. Okay, mm-hmm. or John McCain, or you know, or yeah. some well, some of these people who've been mixed up in this all along, exactly. and are also tied to those secret societies that are at least trying to rule the world and certainly rule the United States. And I do think there's a danger that if in 2008 the Bushes are all out and they bring in some other. Uh, leader, whether it's a moderate Republican or whether it's a Democrat. And I think there is a danger that so many people will go, wow, all right, got rid of those tyrannical bushes, uh, and now everything's okay, and we'll go back to business as usual. I think that is a danger, but I see many hopeful signs that many, many people, because of all this turmoil and this upset uh, about the truth of 9-11, they're beginning to look beyond the old paradigms and the old worldviews. And I think they're beginning to understand that it's us, the people, the public, the long-suffering taxpayers of this country against the wealthy, elitist globalist. Mm-hmm. And that's where the struggle is. Okay. Um, and now, sort of pulling back uh, from and taking a look at the big picture and in the sociological sort of aspect, uh, the 9-11 truth movement is a really rare chance for us to look at uh, like an entirely new esoteric niche. You know, on 9-10, there was no 9-11 truth movement, and now right. it's a massive thing. Uh, what's your take on its, its beginnings and its growth and how it's evolved over the last five years? Well, I would start with... Uh I'm almost sure it was Abraham Lincoln who said you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. Yeah. And I think that's what we see happening here uh, because I have written and researched and then spoken about 9-11 issues. Of course, I have come into close contact with many of the people within the 9-11 truth movement. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I want, the one word that I would use to describe that movement is Diverse. Okay. Tim, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, You know, back during the anti-war movement days of the late 60s and 70s, most of the leadership and most of the people who were out there marching, and not all, but but in general, they were long-haired, hippie, you know, alternative lifestyle type people. In the 9-11 Truth Movement, I see close-cropped ex-military guys, white conservative, black liberal, women, (laughs) old men and women, young kids. I mean, it is a cross-section of America, and I think it's wonderful. And do they all agree with each other? Hell no. They they argue like cats and dogs over all kinds of little particulars and details and, you know, what actually hit the Pentagon and, and on like that. And so uh, it's a very diverse group with very diverse uh, ideas, but the commonality is they do not accept the facile and unsupported government version, and they know, they sense, they know in their utmost being that something else happened, and they are all working to find the truth. Yeah. 
And uh, two of the good things I think that you can say about the 9-11 Truth Movement is, first of all, is they're starting to bring in a lot of scholars now, and uh, that really helps with uh, winning over the, the mainstream public. And also, it really seems like the 9-11 Truth Movement has really captured the young Americans uh, who are interested in, in the esoteric field, if you will. I mean, a lot of the other areas haven't, have had a drop-off. And a lot of the young people are gravitating toward 9/11. What do you think of that? Oh, I, absolutely. In fact, I'm constantly amazed. Uh, I, for years, talking about conspiracy, I always felt like I was talking to the gray-haired set. Okay, mm -hmm. but more and more, I've had all kinds of young people come up to me and say, "Oh man, you set me on the course to, uh, to truth." You know, I've been reading your books, and then I've gone out and studied over their stuff, and da 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 da, and that's just great. But let me mention the scholars for 9/11 Truth. Okay, okay? of which I am. I'm one of the permanent members mm -hmm. because I have taught that course at the university for years and years and years. Uh, but it's absolutely incredible. you got Stephen Young, who by just physics alone has shown that the World Trade Center could not have just crumbled and fallen down due to fires. And what does he get for his trouble? He's on paid leave from the university to ask him to step aside. He's got somebody else teaching his classes now. Uh, there was another fellow whose name doesn't immediately come to me who's been also uh, set aside. Essentially, you know, they, they, they're being punished for trying to tell the truth and for yeah. trying to teach the truth and teach thought processes to their st students. Now, what does this tell us about the state of freedom and democracy in the United States today. Uh, there was a story recently of an Army sergeant who got an unsolicited email talking about 9-11 issues, and he simply responded to it and said, yeah, I think there's a lot of questions that haven't been answered. And now he's being, uh, he was relieved of his duties and now faces possible court-martial for un-American activities. So, see, we can fight and kill those Iraqis to force freedom on them, but we can't have any over here. If you try to speak out and speak your mind, uh, then you get suspended from your job. You get facing a possible court-martial in the military. Uh, it's absolutely unconscionable, and it's absolutely amazing that this type of stuff is going on, and so many mainstream Americans seem to content to allow that. Yeah. Where, where is our belief in the Constitution? Where is our belief in freedom and democracy? And, you know, for that matter, uh, having lived through all the anti-war movement of the 60s and the 70s, um, those people aren't dead. They're still around. Yeah. Where are they today? I mean, you know, we, we've got a whole lot more cause to point the finger at the government today than we ever did in Vietnam. Vietnam, looking back, we now see it was a gigantic mistake and a waste of manpower and a waste of material, a waste of our economy. But at the time, we didn't know that, and nobody much was telling us that. We just kind of got sucked into Vietnam. We had some advisors there, and then we sent some more advisors, and then some more advisors, and then we had the phony Gulf of Tonkin thing where we were told that the North Korean gunboats had attacked our Sixth Fleet in the Gulf of Tonkin. And Johnson runs in and says, quote, our boys are floating in the water. He says, we can't allow this. You've got to give me the power to wage war. And Congress was stampeded into bypassing the Constitution, which clearly states only the Congress has the power to declare war. And they passed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which gave power, the power of war making to Johnson. And off we went into a war that cost 58,000 American lives, wrecked our economy, caused schisms between families and generations, and disrupted the lives of more than probably, uh, 500,000 or close to a million Americans, okay, mm -hmm. all based on a lie. 
because there were no gunboats. They did not tack the Sixth Fleet. That's been thoroughly documented, okay? Yeah. And so now we have the same situation, and yet they, they were willing to risk their lives at Kent State and other places to try to stop that illegal, immoral war. Where are they today? I guess they're too too worried about their 401ks. Yeah, I think so. Where do you think this uh, 9-11 truth movement, where does it need to go in the future? What's the next step for it to sort of uh, advance this thing? Well, there are you know, there's several ways to go. First off, of course, we need to just keep advancing the truth. We need to just keep talking to people. Individuals need to be having book reviews, uh, groups in their home, neighborhood parties, showing loose change, uh, you know, yeah. various things. Just educate people. We'll get more and more people aware, uh, and, and that's not to say proselytize. Uh, you don't have to go out and try to convince anybody of anything. Just say, look, friends, neighbors, relatives, there's some serious questions here, and you need to get seriously looking at it. And then recommend some things. My book, The Terror Conspiracy, puts it all in a context. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the, the young guys that did lose change. There's a, a, Alex Jones has some really good uh, um Videos out there. There's all there's all kinds of material. All of David Ray Griffin's books. Uh, they're, 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 it's all over the place. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you have to go look for it. Okay. Because like the Bible says, it says, "Seek the truth, and you shall find it." Didn't say turn on TV and let one of those airheads tell you the truth. You have to seek <laughs> yeah. it. You have yeah. to seek it. You got to go out and look for it. And once you know it, then share it with your friends, your neighbors, everybody else. Now, there's also maybe some ways to go about it. This is really interesting. The news just came through today. Elliot Spitzer was the uh, U.S. attorney in uh, New York, and as such, he would certainly have jurisdiction over the murder of 3,000 people there in New York City. And I know that as far back as at least two, maybe three years ago, he was presented with uh, all kinds of documentation to convene a grand jury to find out, you know, what truly happened. But he dragged his feet. He's done nothing. And everybody keeps scratching their head and saying, I wonder why he hadn't moved on that. Well, today we find that he just hardly won the Democratic nomination for governor of New York. So, see, if you play ball, you advance in this system. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if he had done his job and had uh, condu- and had convened a grand jury with subpoena powers, we might could be getting to the truth of 9-11. Yeah. Um, do you think that uh, this sort of uh, 9-11 is uh, very similar in a lot of ways to the JFK assassination? Do you, Absolutely. Do you think this is some sort of situation where, like, every half century or so, there's a correction in the, the long-range plans of uh, a global world government? Hey, uh, if you've got a methodology and it works one time, then why not use it again? Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. Uh, I, in my book, The Terror Conspiracy, I draw more than 15 comparisons to the Kennedy assassination. For example, in both cases, within an hour of the event, when you would think the authorities really didn't even know precisely what had happened, they're already blaming one person. 63 is Lee Harvey Oswald. In 2001, it was Osama bin Laden. They said, he did it. And from then on, and this is another parallel, the government investigation has all been working on the hypothesis that Oswald did it or bin Laden did it, and they only accept the information that would support that thesis. They don't bother to go and look at all the other evidence that points in other directions. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, just to get on my own personal little soapbox here, one of the things that really irritates me about the 9-11 truth movement, I'm a big believer in, in uh, the 9-11 conspiracy and everything, I'm totally on board with that, um, is sort of this uh, holier-than-thou kind of attitude where it's like if you research other aspects of the esoteric, then you're not a true patriot, you shouldn't be wasting your time on little green men and things like that. Well, Tim, to you and to your listeners, I'll simply say that people learn at their own pace and in their own time and when they're ready to learn. Uh, if a person... Uh, begins to open their mind with the 9-11 truth movement, and they begin to realize that the government has lied to us and uh, that 9-11 was not exactly how they portrayed it, but they are not yet ready to accept the reality of UFOs or extraterrestrials, then, hey, peace to them, okay? You know, let, them, let them do their thing because once you set out on that pathway to truth, you can always stop, but you can never go back. Yeah. And once they know, once they come to realize that they were lied to about the Kennedy assassination, about the Gulf of Tonkin, about Watergate, about Vietnam, about yeah. Ruby Ridge, yeah. about the Murrah Federal Building, Oklahoma City, about Waco, Texas, and now about 9-11, then maybe they will go, gee, you know what? Maybe we've been lied to about uh, UFOs and ETs. Yeah, so maybe we should just be patient with them. You just have to be patient. <laughs> you just have to be patient. Yeah. People learn when they're good and ready to learn and not before. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they've used this to attack me uh, because I wrote the, the world's top-selling nonfiction book on UFOs. Uh, they, they've hammered me with that, you know. Yeah. Uh, they, oh, he writes about UFOs as if that means I don't know about anything else, you know, yeah. or that I, I must wear some kind of uh, tinfoil hat or something. Uh, it's absolutely amazing, but... Uh, and I'm not going to try to convince anybody to the reality. You can read my book, Alien Agenda, and you can find out all the facts for yourself and then make up your own mind. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything. Exactly. But I will say this. If you just blindly dismiss the idea of UFOs, extraterrestrial life, alternative universes, exotic technology, if you just dismiss all that, then there's no way you're going to be able to accurately figure out what's truly happening in the world today because you're missing a big piece of the puzzle. Exactly, exactly. That's what I've been trying to tell a lot of people myself, and uh, I really appreciate your work because you're not afraid to tackle that part of uh, the, the grand picture. Well, it's just there, and you you know you could, to ignore it is to just ignore the elephant in your living room. Exactly. And now, referencing back to our interview last year, you were uh, must have been must have been all that remote viewing research and practice you did because you said uh, you know this was talking about in the event of a nuclear attack in America. This is a direct quote from you: "Huge mobs of people begging to get in." This is regarding the the uh, the camps. camps yeah. Yep. Huge mobs of people begging to get in, saying, "Please give me some food and water." And uh, this was, we recorded the interview the first week in August of last year, and then at the end of the month, uh, Hurricane Katrina, and the famous video of people waiting outside the convention center chanting for food and water. That's right. Um, you pretty much hit the nail right on the head a month earlier that that's what you'd expect to see, and it pretty much happened. So hats off to you in that regard. You know, Tim, it's really interesting. I, I, this just 
and on the one hand puzzles the heck out of me, and on the other I realize it's simply human nature. Mm-hmm. But in the late sixties, early seventies, I had front page stories in a major newspaper saying that Kennedy assassination was a coup d'état. Okay, and covered up the level of the federal government. Well, I was the nut, the coop, the buff, the conspiracy theorist. Yeah. In 1973, I told everybody who would listen that Nixon was a crook and he would not serve out his tomb term. Well, I was unpatriotic and a conspiracy theorist and a buff, but it, but it turned out to be correct. Okay, I told, and it's just come right on up. Mm-hmm. The day after 9/11, I posted on the internet and I said, "Look, you know this is terrible, and we have to find out who's truly responsible for." this, but, you know, let's don't run off half-cocked. Let's really get calm, cool, and collected and start looking at the facts and figure out who's truly behind this attack. And, of course, now with this ever-growing 9-11 truth movement, again, I've been proven correct. So my track record is pretty damn good. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Now, how about the track record of the federal government? <laughs> let's see. They got caught in this lie and that lie and another lie, and then they lied about that to cover up that lie. You know, they have no track record for veracity. And yet, I'm still the conspiracy theorist in the nut and the kook. It just, I don't quite understand it. <laughs> yeah. Um, why do you think, uh, this is sort of just a little throwback to the, to, to the quote and everything. Uh, why do you think that the, uh, these massive camps and everything weren't utilized during the uh, post-Katrina uh, relocation and everything like that? Well, uh, number one, if you'll think back and remember, there was no real coordinated effort to relocate people. There was people just spread out, went where they could, as they could. Yeah. Uh, there were some half-hearted uh, efforts. Uh, and I think that, number one, uh, that, that that general plan of trying to get all those people uh, was not put into effect because, uh, number one, they were mostly taking care of themselves, and then they already had the on-site places like the uh, – uh, the uh, dome and uh, other places uh, that were essentially holding areas yeah. for them, you know. Yeah. And they had troops around them, so they already had them. Uh, it was not that great a group of people. And then, plus, I suspect that they did not want to put that whole uh, camp thing in operation because it would draw attention. public attention to it. That's yeah. right. See, I got onto that way back there in. Uh, Gosh, it was so long back now, I can't even remember when it was, either late 70s, early 80s, uh, when Castro sent all his boat people over here, mm-hmm. emptied out the jails, the insane asylums, and just sent all the undesirables over here. And, of course, we took them in, and the next thing I knew, I, I noticed that a whole bunch of them were being uh, housed at Fort Chaffee, Arkansas. Well, when I was in the Army, I had uh, briefly been stationed at Fort Chaffee, and it was my understanding that Fort Chaffee had been closed. So I did some checking, and I found out that officially it had been closed, but unofficially there was a maintenance team there, and it was still maintained. And so when they had these boat people, they just shuffled them in there, and they had a place for them behind barbed wire for them to to stay. And that's when I began to go, what's this all about, and begin to find out about all these military reservations in various locations around the country that have been deemed uh, detention centers in the event of an emergency. But see, that has smacked so much of concentration camps. In fact, John Ashcroft, one of the reasons he got, he was bounced out of there pretty quick is he was too obvious and too open in his desire to have concentration camps for dissidents. 
And what's a dissonant? Anybody disagrees with you. Yeah, you and me. Okay, you and me. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, it's a pretty frightening thing when you look at it, and they're there. They're just sitting there, okay? I detail all this in my book, The Terror Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Talk about Rex 84 and a lot of, uh, a lot of these uh, codename programs to round up American citizens and throw them in camps. Yeah. Okay? And that's what's going to happen if martial law gets declared. And it's all just sitting there waiting to go. They All they got to do is just sign the name, and then it's uh, we're off and gone. Given the uh, the government's lousy track record of just about getting anything done uh, in a bureaucratic sort of way, in the the uh, foul job that FEMA did on on Katrina and everything, is there some hope that maybe uh, that if they pulled the trigger on that sort of situation, that they really couldn't do the job very well, or is it a situation now where they have so many people in there that'll just be willing to follow orders that there's not much of a chance that uh, people are going to say, "No, I'm not doing that." Oh boy, that's a tricky question. <laughs> if, if you'll recall, in the late 90s, there was a bit of a uh, scandal about the fact that they polled uh, military units, particularly Marines out in California, uh, and asked them if they'd be willing to kick in American citizens' doors and take their weapons. Mm-hmm. And that was actually not supposed to be made public, but it kind of leaked out. It caused a little furor, and then they uh, they spun that story by saying, putting a good light on it, saying, well... Three out of five said they would not do that. Well, but that means two out of five said they would. Yeah. And it's my understanding that they have been transferring and uh, these people who say, yeah, I'll do that, all into the same units so that they'll have whole units, whole brigades, whole divisions of people who say, yeah, I'll kick in their door and go get their weapons. So, you know, this, again, it depends on how widespread uh, this becomes. And the only good thing is, is that I think the only reason this happened happened before now is that, number one, America's corporate leaders are trying to maintain the, the bottom line profits uh, as long as they can. And yeah. if that kind of disruption comes, then it's just going to be almost nationwide chaos. And uh, the bottom line is going to be severely impacted. The stock market will probably crash. And, I mean, it, it It'll be just terrible. And so they, they're trying to stave that off. And the only other reason, of course, is because we have guns, okay? And the American people are pretty long-suffering. We've had it too soft, too long. We're going to put up with a whole lot. But if it gets to the point of where they're coming around, kicking in your door and wanting to take your gun uh, or wanting to haul you off to a detention center or wanting to force you to take inoculations against some bird flu or something akin, uh, I think that people are going to finally say, we've had enough and and, uh, there could be some real problem. And I would hope that we could all get aware of what's happening and start using our vote and start using our political processes uh, to avoid something like that. There's sort of like a various scenarios that this could play out. Well, they're playing with fire, okay, because yeah. uh, they could tip the whole thing over at any time. Uh, but I'll give you two different scenarios, one, one, one which we've kind of touched on, which is that some big event happens, maybe a nuclear device goes off in some mid-American city or there's a huge uh, epidemic in some big city. Uh, people panic. They try to move out of the cities. Uh, there's lots of widespread 
widespread disruption, the economy teeters or falls, uh, martial law is declared, uh, they start trying to round up people and put them in the detention centers so they can keep everybody under control, then the militias and the freedom fighters start going wild, and we could really get in a almost a uh, civil war state, uh, yeah. in which case they would then call in the United Nations peacekeeping force to come and restore order, and uh, many thoughtful and moderate middle Americans would be all for it. Please come and restore order. Okay, and the next thing you know, we'd be living in a country that's dominated, you know, by the United Nations peacekeeping force, and we'd find the World Trade Organization, you know, running the country. Uh, now, let's assume that it doesn't get that bad, uh, and we keep muddling along. What's going to happen is, is that uh, they're going to complete their Canamex highway plans, and this is a plan for that super corridor that's going to reach from southern Mexico all the way up through the central United States and branch off into eastern and western Canada. Yeah. Uh, you can go find that at the uh, National Super Corridor Coalition or NASCO, N-A-S-C-O dot com. Mm -hmm. And you'll see the map for all this. And they're very, very uh, pleased to announce that it has nothing to do with government. They're doing this regardless of government. Congress has not authorized any money for this, nor authorized uh, the implementation of it, and yet it's just happening. Uh, the World Trade Organization has now ordered the U.S. Con Congress to change some U.S. laws, and they have meekly gone along with that. We've lost the republic. We're losing our sovereignty. And uh, with this Canamex Highway, uh, which would be the only customs port will be at the smart port in Kansas City, uh, and it will be sovereign Mexican territory, and Mexican nationals will be running that. And that would be just about the first time that they'll check on anything, so there will be no borders. And this is creating, of course, what the Council on Foreign Relations has been pushing for for some time, the North American Union. Yeah. Um, this was all, by the way, this was all cemented with the Security and Prosperity Partnerships signed by President Bush in 2005 in Waco, Texas, along with Mexican President Vincente Fox and then uh, Prime Minister of Canada Paul Martin, uh, this alone is grounds for impeachment because the Constitution states that the President cannot sign treaties with foreign nations without a two-thirds approval vote of the U.S. Senate. Well, the U.S. Senate did not vote to approve this, and a lot of them don't even know it's happening. Uh, and then uh, Bush put all this through the Commerce Department, and they've been pushing it through the State Highway Departments, and there is uh, already a lot of controversy and uh, backlash, but it's all taking place within the states. Uh, Texas, it's the Trans-Texas Corridor. Um, Ohio, I think, is in rebellion. Uh, Minnesota's got problems with this whole thing. Kansas does. But uh, everybody thinks it's a state problem. They don't see that this is the embryonic stages of creating a North American Union. And yes, with its own monetary unit, the Amero, as offered by the Council on Foreign Relations, which would replace the uh, Mexican peso and the U.S. and Canadian dollar. And in other words, Tim, they are going, they're duplicating the process that they did to pull all your European nations into the European Union. Yeah. Um, and, of course, they're already starting the same plan in Asia. And it's amazing because it looks like that if everything just continues the way it's going and unless people wake up, we're going to be in a George Orwell 1984 world where there are three primary regions, and I'm sure that at any time, two of them will be in conflict with each other, and we'll be in a perpetual war, perpetual state of conflict and agitation, uh, while the international banking elite play both ends against the middle.
Yep, yep. It's a very, uh, it's a very depressing situation. But uh, and that's the best. That's the best scenario. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, to hone in on one aspect of 9/11 that is uh, probably the stickiest one for me that uh, I always sort of had a problem with, but you dealt really well with it in the book, and that's the phone calls from the passengers on the planes on 9/11. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Um, first off. Do I mention the voice morphing technology in the book? Because that was coming in just about the time that the book was being completed. Uh, no, you didn't get it. All right, all right. Well, first off, I, I know that I do address the problem of cell phone calls in particular because uh, they they just weren't there in 2001. You couldn't do it, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, the By the time your signal reached a cell phone tower, the plane, you know, at 30,000 feet going 500 miles an hour it has lost that signal and is trying to pass it off to another one. You just couldn't do it, and I had experts tell me that unless you were under 5,000 feet or five to 6,000 feet, you really couldn't make a cell phone call. And then, of course, in 2004, in the fall, American Airlines and a high-technology company announced this new chip they had developed, that's, and they had tested it, and they said, hey, wow, this is going to allow cell phone calls from high-flying aircraft. That's 2004. So what the heck was it going on in 2001? Yeah. All right? I think the answer is simply this. In uh, This is a Washington Post article from 1999. I wish I'd had it in time to uh, put into the book. Mm -hmm. I, uh, the uh, former commander-in-chief of the U.S. Special Operations Command, a General Carl Steiner, sat in amazement as he listened to a recording of his own voice say, Gentlemen, we've called you together to inform you that we are going to overthrow the United States government. Well, of course, G General Steiner had never said anything like that. Yeah. But he himself said, damn, that's me. And what it was, it was a demonstration at Los Alamos National Laboratory of voice morphing technology. Uh, in other words, they now have the digital capability of just taking a snippet of your voice, and then they can reconstruct it, and then they can make you say anything they want you to say. They had a recording of, uh, of uh, Colin Powell stating, I'm being treated well by my captors. And uh, one of the scientists that worked on this said they chose to have him say something like that that he would never otherwise have said. Yeah. So they can create these voices now. And, and that was announced publicly in 1999, which if you know anything about military intelligence, that means they probably had that technology t 10 years earlier. Yeah. But it was all secret. And that, that, uh, that really makes me wonder about the cell phones because we know the most famous ones, one of the cell phone calls were from Barbara Olson. Mm -hmm. Well, she was a newscaster. Her voice was all over the place. Yeah. And then we've got this fellow named Mark Bigham, uh, okay, who calls his mother. And uh, does he say, hi, Mom, it's me, like anybody else would? No, he says, hi, Mom, this is Mark Bingham. Your son, you know. Oh, wait really? a minute, wait a minute. I've never said anything like that to my mom. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, then he goes on and he says, uh, we're being hijacked, you know. He says, oh, my God, you know. He says, I want to tell you I love you. And she said, oh, well, well who is it? Who's on there? And he says, well, you believe me, don't you, Mom? He sa And she says, yes, yeah, I believe you, but who, who is it? Who's captured your airplane? And he says, you do believe me, don't you, Mom? And he gets <laughs> the same response. It's like that's the only snippet they had, yeah. you know. 
And so it certainly makes you wonder. Um, I can't tell you that that's the answer to the cell phone calls, but what I can tell you is they have that technological capability. Yeah. Well, what, uh, what's, what's going on for you next? What can we look forward to from you? Uh, what's in the pipeline for Jim Mars? Well, uh, I'm working on uh, a new book, which I'm not really at liberty to start discussing now, only to say that it will be an extension of, uh, of my rule by secrecy and my terror conspiracy. Awesome. And uh, taking it even into further, stranger, darker areas, and uh, of course, I'm uh, I'm working on some TV uh, projects and hopefully a movie project, uh, and I'm still teaching uh, my course at the university uh, and lecturing. And anyway, it's uh, it's a real busy time for me. I, I'm sure. You know, I'm, I'm I, I have to stop and remind myself that I am approaching retirement age, but I don't see any retirement in the offing for me. <laughs> yeah. just too much stuff going on. I got too much to do. Yeah. Um, any conferences you want to plug that you're going to be at or anything like that you want to mention? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Thank you for reminding me. Um, first off, uh, uh, on December the 9th, I'll be in Kansas City, uh, Missouri at the Uptown Theater for uh, something called the Dark 30 Tour. And this is going to be really, really neat. This is going to be I'll be there talking about government conspiracies and Nick Redfern will be there talking about UFOs and uh, Joshua P. Warren will be there talking about paranormal activities, plus we'll have some music, plus some food. Awesome. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be a really great event. Anybody that uh, thinks they're going to be in the Kansas City area, area at the time uh, ought to go check dark30tour.com uh, and pick up some advanced tickets while they're cheap. Yeah. And then uh, I'll be out in uh, Arizona for an event out there. This is going to be November the 17th through the 19th in Tempe, Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to be talking about uh, uh, future technology from the past. Oh, yeah. And uh, just to give you a hint of what that's all about is why did we make that mad dash to Baghdad mm -hmm. when we invaded Iraq, which left the countryside largely unpacified, which has created this terrible situation that we're in right now. So what, what was it in Baghdad that we had to go to? Certainly wasn't Saddam Hussein because we didn't catch him for a long time after that. But there was something in there that apparently our military intelligence leaders decided they just had to get hold of. And I'll discuss that at, uh, at uh, Tempe, Arizona. Awesome. Awesome. How can people get the books? Anywhere they want, really. It was all over the market. Yeah, store, any, so. any bookstore will have it. Amazon.com has it. Uh, we have some available from JimMars.com. So, you know, they're just all over the place. Uh, you may have to ask for one, give them to order one, but they, I'm sure they can get one a day or two. Exactly. And the new book is The Terror Conspiracy, Deception, 9-11, and the Loss of Liberty. And much like last year when we were talking about rule by secrecy, it's very important to point out 31 pages of sources in this book. Like Jim always says, don't believe him. Do your own research. Look in the 31 pages of sources. If you want, if you don't believe something, find it in the sources. Look it up. Do your own research, right? Absolutely. And then, you know, then it's not a question of do you believe Mars or not. It's a question of do I know this or not. Exactly. And exactly. once you know something, you know it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Jim, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. It was great having you uh, be a part of the new season. And anytime I get a chance to talk to you, it's always fun for me. Thank you, Tim. And to you and your audience, I'll just leave you with this. Always question authority. And the higher the authority, the harsher the questions. 
That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. I want to thank Jim Marsh for sitting down and talking to us for so long. The new book is The Terror Conspiracy, Deception, 9-11, and Loss of Liberty. We couldn't do a season premiere without Jim Mars, so I'm really psyched we could have him back on the show and bring it all back home again. I want to give big thanks to Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Ralph Molesworth, and Joe V. of BenAllOfAmerica.com for your tremendous help in the ramp-up to getting Ben All of America Audio Season 2 up and running. Check out BenAllOfAmerica.com where you can read their columns, find out more about them and what they have to say about the world of the esoteric. This stuff is tremendous, and I hope you check it out. If you are a long-time listener to Been All of America Audio and you want to help us out, you want to help celebrate the new season, click on the PayPal button at BenAllOfAmerica.com. Help us keep the show going. Help us make these long, long-distance phone calls to big esoteric names. It costs money to put a show on like this, and we don't have ads or sponsors or anything like that. So if you can help out, we'd appreciate it. Next week... We've got another big interview lined up for you. Paul Kimball, controversial UFO documentary filmmaker and blogger extraordinaire, is going to be on the show. We've got a special musical preview coming up. So stick around, and you'll hear a little bit of what we're going to be talking about on Been All of America Audio Season 2 next week. Folks, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for coming back. And if you're new, thanks for sampling the show. You'll be hearing from me next week with Paul Kimball. Until then, this is Tim Benall, signing off.